Hello and welcome to the next episode of Clinical Conversations, provided by the Royal College of Physicians and by Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Dr. Jonathan Bargett, and I'm delighted today to introduce to you Dr. Fran Maroney, who is a consultant physician in gastroenterology and general internal medicine. Welcome, Fran. Thank you, Johnny, for inviting me. It is an honour to be here. So, um, thank you for your time, and thank you for agreeing to come and talk about how to be a nutritional champion. Um, so really what I'd like to sort of ask you to begin with is how, how do we uh, go about recognising malnutrition in the acutely ill patient front? Well, first of all, John, it's important to know that malnutrition is more common than we you know, ought to think about. We're in a developed country and we always think that uh, you know, our patients are well nourished, but this is actually not uh, true. We are aware that... Uh, about 25% of patients that are admitted in the hospital acutely ill have a degree of malnutrition. And if we think about the population of the frail and elderly coming from nursing home, actually the percentage of malnourished patients in this population can rise up to 50%. So it is a significant problem. We should be able to recognize this. Now, how do we recognize someone is malnourished? It is actually rather simple, and the most important thing of all is to be aware of it. And so if you are the admitting physician and you are aware of the risk of malnutrition on your, on your acutely ill population, the simple things you can do is to ask some questions to try and recognize this. And, you know, simple question that you can ask without even going too far in uh, calorie intake and expenditure, it is really, have you lost any weight recently? Or are your clothes any looser than usual? Or when was the last time you had a good meal? And you'll be surprised how many people will tell you the last time I had a meal was over a week ago. So in terms of um, assessing the patient, so what you're talking about is simple things at the bedside that we can do. Um, talking to our patients and asking them whether they've noticed any changes. Um, are there any other scoring systems that we can use in addition to this, to, um, to help our assessment of nutrition and malnutrition in the hospital? Yes, we do have a scoring system, a tool for assessing malnutrition called the MASTER score. This is the Malnutrition Universal Screening Tool, which is uh, developed by the British Association of Parental and Enteronutrition, so-called BIPIN. And you will you know, be familiar with it, and it's commonly adopted in uh, all hospitals in Scotland or should be as recommended by the complex nutrition standard that was developed a few years ago and so it's based mainly on weight BMI and weight loss and risk for uh, malnutrition and so it separates you in uh, um, categories of malnutrition so your step one will be to calculate your BMI so patients are required to, to be weighed on admissions it's actually interesting to hear that about two-thirds of patients that are admitted into hospital do not get weighed on their admission time. So it is important that the nurses are aware of it and they weigh the patient. And then the BMI is calculated with the patient's height. The second step is to address the weight loss. And so you will um, ask the patient if they lost any weight in the past three to six months. And according to the percentage of weight loss, you score more points. And then if they are acutely unwell, that also scores points. You're most likely to score from that side if you are admitted into acute medicine. 
usually when you are um, address the first uh, three steps of uh, your tool, then you can classify the patients according to low, medium or high risk of malnutrition and you can act accordingly. There are also other more uh, complex uh, scoring systems. They are based on a two stages um, analysis of the risk of malnutrition. And these are also based on the etiology of the disease. The scoring tool that we can use, it is the Global Leadership Initiatives on Malnutrition Scoring System, which is based on your risk of malnutrition and then two assessment criteria, which is a phenotypic assessment criteria, which is based on weight loss and etiological criteria, which is based on um, disease border and inflammatory conditions. If you do meet the criteria for um, malnutrition, then you can be... Uh, classified for nutritional supplementation or interventions. If you ask your dietitian colleagues, they have even more complex uh, um, and accurate uh, tools to assess malnutrition. For example, folds measurement of hand grip strengths, but we do not adopt this usually in clinical practice unless in special circumstances, for example, to analysis of sarcopenia patients on liver transplant. So Fran, that's really useful. And I guess once we've used those um, bedside tools and history taking, which is um, key to our beginning of our assessment of these patients, you alluded to the fact that obviously patients may have underlying disease process or other reasons that could be causing their malnutrition. So can you tell us a bit more about what the causes of malnutrition are and, and who, who are the patients that are at risk of malnutrition? Well, Malnutrition, by definition, is a state in which you have a deficiency of nutrition, such energy, protein, vitamins, mineral, that can cause adverse effect in your body composition and function and overall into your clinical outcome. But for the purposes of this chat today, Jonathan, we're probably going to focus on undernutrition because you understand obesity is also a form of malnutrition. But what we are interested in today is patients that have malnutrition in the form of undernutrition. And so if you do have undernutrition, you'll be deficient, as the definition suggests, in macro or micronutrients. The commonest cause of malnutrition that we are actually seeing in hospital is protein malnutrition. You'll be surprised to hear that actually Koshakors, which is a form of, you know, mainly caloric deficit by protein malnutrition, is quite common in our populations of acutely ill patients. If you take our elderly, when they're coming in with for example, pneumonia, very often they develop peripheral edema. And this is most likely to do with a combination of protein, malnutrition, and leakage of your uh, endothelium of your blood vessels caused by sepsis. So most of our patients admitted into hospital are at risk of malnutrition simply because when they're acutely ill, they go into what we call a catabolic state. So now you imagine when you have an inflammatory response, you do have a cascade of cytokine, for example, and TNF, interleukin-1, interleukin-6. Those have two significant impact on your nutrition. One is centrally by reducing appetite. And we do have increasing evidence that restricting calorie during acute illness is actually protective for a short period of time, but also increases your expenditure of calorie with increasing glucose requirements and increased production of acute phase protein. And so your liver is constantly overrunning on a glycogen and ketogenesis 
and um, gluconeogenesis consuming more energy than what you're getting in and the other source of your energy will be your fat so you have fat loss but fat um, producing energy from fat is itself quite an expenditure uh, process but also more readily available you will consume amino acids from your skeletal muscles to then produce energy and this really perpetuates a um, catch-22 situation which you don't have appetite you don't take enough calorie but because of your inflammatory response you consume more calorie generating a catabolic state with weight loss and leading to malnutrition so if we're taking our elderly population which are our higher risk of malnutrition even in a primo morbid state when they come into acutely ill in the hospital they have a significant risk of uh, profound malnutrition and sarcopenia if we do take uh, more uh, complex cases, uh, um, you know, for example, people that have intradominal surgery or um, they have are currently not accessible gut, then you can run into trouble with micronutrients, malnutrition. So these are your vitamins and your minerals, and you must be aware of extreme situations of vitamin or malnutrition, for example, rickets or. Um, I have for a moment forgotten the English version of scorbuto, uh, you know, for vitamin C uh, malnutrition. But these are rather rare in our populations. You, we normally see more of a calorie malnutrition or a protein malnutrition. So that's, that's really interesting. And it's clear from what you're saying that the population that come into the hospital, the patients that we're seeing, nutrition is, is a key part of their assessment. And in these patients that we've recognised malnutrition or undernutrition, as you say, it seems to be that feeding is um, vitally important to the plan and early involvement with the MDT is uh, something that might be useful. Can you tell us a bit more about the role that dietitians play and, and, um, and how we get a plan and, and feeding our patients? Well, yes, when you've recognised a patient's at risk of malnutrition, yourself as a general physician, you can sim do simple things. For example, if a patient is thirsty, well, you have to offer water. If a patient wants to try something to eat, you can offer something to eat. But when we are um, entering the uh, more tricky phases of significant malnutrition, when it is important to assess the calorie expenditure and the calorie needs, then we are not experts on the matter. And we have to recognize this. And that's why we have to work closely with our dietitian colleagues. They have the knowledge, the meaning, and also the time set aside to sit with the patients and assess a food diary and their calorie needs and a calorie spend. And so we have to work as a team in most of the things we do in medicine. And nutrition is one of those uh, subspecialties that actually overruns many other specialties. So as a nutritional expert, you'll be involved in the management of patients from any specialty, really, from surgical to intensive care and general medicine. And uh, it is important that we work as a team-based and the dietitians are core part of it. Um, but before, you know, we, I want to go into details on algorithms and measurement how much proteins or fat patients has to uh, assimilate during their acute phase illness because that's not really my field of expertise. And as I said, we 
ask our dietitians help for it and also be able to recognize patients that are severely malnourished and there are high risk of refeeding and we should follow that advice in terms of calorie intake and measuring blood tests if they're at risk of refeeding and also provide them with vitamins that are necessary to avoid complications of refeeding. From what you're saying, it sounds that there are lots of challenges involved in feeding someone who has been malnourished. You mentioned refeeding. Um, can you talk about um, refeeding syndrome a bit more, please? Yes, of course. So there is two school of thought mainly among people that deal with malnourished patients. And there is one school of thought that refeeding is still an issue and we should be very careful. But there are physicians or surgeons that are dealing with undernourished patients that actually do not feel that the risk is as high as has been previously documented in literature. Nevertheless, rapid refeeding a patient with malnourished can lead to acute refeeding syndrome, which... Uh, it is life-threatening because it can lead to sudden death and cardiac arrest. Now, imagine your body going through a starvation period and you try to minimize the expenditure of energy and intracellular metabolic processes are reduced to a bare minimum. And so there is a significant loss of intracellular electrolytes like calcium, magnesium, potassium, and phosphate. If we refeed the patient too quickly, then there is offload of calorie and these intracellular metabolic processes are restarting uncontrolled. And therefore, you will have a shift of electrolytes inside the cells with a dump of circulating electrolytes that can lead to you know, cardiac arrest and other complications like cerebral edema, seizures. And so it is important that if we recognize the patient is a severe risk of malnutrition using this toolkit that we had talked about before, for example, mass tools course, and uh, um, we then act upon the risk before complications, of course. And that's why I think some people believe that the risk of refeeding is much lower than what documented before, because we are aware of it and we act preventively on the patients that we know that are high risk of refeeding and therefore we avoid refeeding syndrome. The problem of course when people are unaware of it and you will develop form of refeeding syndrome that you, they may go under recognized. Now who is at risk for refeeding and the people that are at risk of refeeding are the ones that have the lowest body mass index so generally we say less than 16 they have lost quite a lot of weight in the past three to six months, over 15% of their body weight. They have little or no nutritional intake in their previous 10 days of admission, or they have low electrolytes to start. So as far as you have one of these characteristics, you'll be at high risk of refeeding. So imagine in our acutely ill population that maybe been ill for a while, taking a patient with COPD, there's been running around on oral steroids at home, really breathless, not really like, feel like eating. It is most likely going to be in the category of high risk refeeding. Or if you have a slightly higher body mass index, up to 18.5, you lost about 10% of your body weight in the previous three months. You had little, so no nutrition in the past five days, and a history of alcohol excess drugs misuse, you know, your own chemotherapy. If you have two of these characteristics, you're also classified as a risk of refeeding. And again, you can imagine how many of our acutely ill patients admitting to general medicine following this. 
And so if you do have this characteristic and you're high risk of refeeding, we should we treat you with care and uh, start nutrition in a planned and slow manner. And above all, making sure before starting any form of uh, refeeding, the electrolytes are corrected. And is there any guidance that is available to clinicians working in the front door in the hospital um, in helping manage patients with refeeding syndrome or who are at risk of refeeding syndrome? Yes, yes, there are guidelines. So the um, uh, NICE provides guidelines, but also there are uh, two boxes on the BIPN websites to be, they can be uh, followed for uh, refeeding and refeeding syndrome. For the dietitians, we, in the extreme case of nutrition, like the anorexia nervosa patients, they are by definition at a higher risk of refeeding. We use a form of guideline called the marzipan guidelines. They are available online and they uh, are a good tool for above all for dietitians that are not used to look after or, or physicians are not look, used to look after patients with anorexia nervosa and they provide detailed um, you know step-by-step guide on how to refeed patients with anorexia nervosa and you if you have a chance to look at them you'll see really how low the calories are at the start of the refeeding process. So you're talking about five kilocalories uh, per kilo, so really, really small amount of calories per day in a patient uh, with anorexia nervosa with high-risk refeeding. That's really helpful, Fran. And I guess that's, that's leading me into my next question. And really, I was wondering if you could talk to us about what options there are for nutritional support in malnourished patients and, and what kind of feeding plans and methods of feeding we can provide for our patients? Yeah, sure. Um, so the treatment of malnutrition is nutrition, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> and how do we provide it? Well, sometimes you'll find that uh, the simple things are the things that matter. Now you're assessing your elderly patients with Parkinson's disease. And maybe the problem they have is that they can't actually hold the calories and that's why they can't feed themselves. And so just maybe provide with OT support, some appropriate calories, making sure that things that are rich to them, these are quite useful things and they're really like simple, simple uh, strategies. The other things we need to think about in our, for example, in our elderly population is uh, diet itself you know um there is good evidence that suggests that your taste changes as you get older and you're much less likely to enjoy food because you don't taste the same and so providing more sapid food maybe extra condiment can maybe make it more enjoyable denture is another big problem a lot of our patients have poor dentation and they can't chew so changing the texture of the diet can be helpful and you also need to remember that some people as they grow older they have issues with motility of the esophagus so once again they maybe find it easier to um, swallow softer consistent food and so the supplementations that we can offer, they can even just be simple thickeners. So if you have issues swallowing and you need to eat in a textured diet, then you can add spoons of uh, thickening agents into your liquids and that makes it easier to swallow. So these are simple things that don't actually provide your calories, extra calories per se, but allow the patients to assess and enjoy nutrition. 
So the f first of all, when we think about nutritional supplementations, we have to ask ourselves two things. And the uh, first thing it is, uh, what are we going to achieve? So what our end goal is. And also, second question is, is the gut an available um, source for nutrition? If the gut is available, then we should use it. And so if the mouth is available, we should provide nutrition orally. If the mouth is not available, then we need to think about other options. And so the first uh, steps on nutritional supplementation are ONS, so-called, oral nutritional supplementation. These are the 45 juices that you've seen many times. It's in the, bed table, in the bedside table of the page. They come in many different shapes and forms and volumes, flavors, consistency. Um, there's not really a right or wrong one, but you need to tailor it by your patients. You don't have to decide this, the dietitian can help you with. But what I urge anybody that does a ward round on a patient that is an ONS is to ask a patient if they actually like it and if they drink it. Because we're very good at prescribing and putting next to the patients, but nobody really checks if the patient took it. And it's like giving a patient with heart failure for rosemite, but then don't bother and checking if they're taking it and then the patient's still a dermatist. Now, You'll find that very often people prescribe their ONS, so the oral nutritional supplementation at time of meals. I don't find this very helpful. Patients already struggle to finish their meals, and that's why they're on ONS. And so maybe discuss with the patients, would you like to have it in the as an afternoon break? Helps. Then making sure that it's coming off the fridge, because if they're cold, they're more palatable. If the patient doesn't like milk-based things, there's no point in prescribing a milkshake type of thing. You maybe can opt for the juices. And if the patient struggles with volume, then you maybe want to opt for a shot. So you need to have a wee thing. But above all, check if the patient has been taking them and readjust. If uh, uh, still, despite oral nutrition supplementation and oral diet, the patient is not achieving calories or there is a reason why the oral route is not available, the next option you have to supplement nutrition is artificial nutrition via nas nasogastric feeding tube. Now, nasogastric feeding tubes are very readily available, easy to insert on a bedside on the ward, and most of the nurses and the junior doctor should be able to possess. NG feedings comes in different shapes and forms as well, and they can be tailored according to the patient needs. Some of it are designed for specific medical conditions. For example, patients with renal disease, they need to go on a special feeding to avoid to overload protein in terms of calories. But there are also um, feedings that can suit patients with different uh, dietary needs. For example, uh, Patients that have dairy intolerance or allergic to milk proteins, they can go on a soya-based uh, feed. But your dietitian will keep you right if the patient needs a multi-fiber or another type of feed, a soya-based. Important things with the NG feeding is the volume of it, but the dietitian will provide you with a plan on how much volume to give the first day to allow the stomach to adapt to the drip feed. I find a very helpful NG feeding also in patients that have persistent nose and vomiting. As con it, we don't tend to give bolus feed, we tend to give continuous feeding. And so you imagine as you start, even at a medium rate of 35 to 50 mLs per hour, of NG feeding, this is a very, very small volume compared if you drink, you know, if you imagine you drink a full can of juice, it's 330 mLs. You will drink that in a, maybe five minutes. 
but you will provide 50 ml in an hour. So your stomach is really slowly adapting to the volumes again. That's really interesting, Fran. Um, I guess one of the things that um, we see quite frequently um, in the critically ill patient is when patients aren't absorbing their feed um, through an NG tube. Are there risks or any way to, um, to help treat the patient who isn't absorbing their feed and, and how do we recognize that in the first instance? So I suspect what you're meaning is that the patients find it difficult to empty their stomachs because non-absorbing feed implies that there's more bowel and working which is not very common having a, a you know a type 1 or type 2 intestinal failure in the medical patients. If you have a malabsorption conditions, then you want absorbent feed. But what you see in the acutely ill patients is they have difficulty on accommodate and above all in critical care, you maybe get a high NG aspirate. And so you think most of their feed is not actually progressing through this small bowel. So the, the, the main two things to do in this case, it is uh, number one, it is to adjust the rate reducing the rate to again allow the stomach to accommodate but the other things you can do is just to stimulate the stomach to empty by adding a prokinetic at the start to the feeding regime some people may find it better using bolus feed but i don't find this quite helpful if the problem is this now if you really have an issue in terms of the stomach is not working or there is a mechanical blockage like a um obstruction at the pylorus or an obstruction at the duodenum that makes it very difficult for the stomach to empty and for the feed to reach the small bowel then the option that you have is considered post-pyloric feeding post-pyloric feeding means you are inserting a feeding tube which tip is then positioned in the jejunum uh, you can do this via nj so you can position this radiologically or endoscopically or if the oral route is not available, then you can think about enteral feeding tube directly placed into the gut, like a gastrostomy with a jejunal extension or a jejunostomy. And so in that circumstance, Fran, um, what does insertion of a gastrostomy actually entail? So um, a gastrostomy is, as the word says, does what it says on the tin. So you create a stoma between the stomach and the abdominal wall in which you position a feeding tube that is readily accessible from the external side and you can feed directly into the stomach. Now you can imagine you will do this for two main reasons. Reason number one, your oral root is not available. For example, patient had a severe stroke and their swallow never recovered. They had a period of six to eight weeks of NG feeding successfully, but NG feeding is not appropriate for long term. It can be malpositioned, can fall out, can block. So these are the patients who are going to go for a gastrostomy. Or the other options are patients that have an inaccessible oral route. For example, patients that have an, had a neck cancers and uh, they may have radiotherapy in the area, which provide a lot of swelling. And so you're going for a feeding tube, a directly a gastrostomy feeding tube. So how do we position them? So there is mainly three ways that you can position a uh, gastrostomy feeding tube. The commonest way is endoscopically, and we call these PEGs, percutaneous endoscopical gastrostomy. We do them in two ways. The commonest ways that you see them doing it is a pull PEG. So you will um, enter the stomach with the endoscope, inflate it, and 
you're operator on the abdominal side will insert a needle and then a string through the stomach. It will be caught by the endoscopist from the inside of the stomach, pull out of the mouth. The peg will be tied to the string and it will be pulled from the abdominal side through the mouth and then out of the abdominal wall. These are called pull pegs. A push peg is uh, done by creating a gastropexy. So you are endoscopically, you inflate the stomach and your abdominal operator will place three to four stitches on the abdominal wall, connecting the stomach uh, wall into the abdominal wall. So creating a gastropexis and then you will insert the peg using a dilator from externally increasing the size of your truck and now push the peg in. Uh, the, the two ways to do it are rather both uh, uh, valid. You will choose the, the options that is more suitable for your patients. It really goes out of the purpose of this chat, Johnny, discussing who is going to need what type of tube. We have a multidisciplinary meeting uh, to discuss these things prior to the insertion of the tube to decide what's the best. But the other way that you can insert a gastrostomy feeding tubes is radiologically. These are called RIG. But the principle is similar. The radiologist will uh, use fluoroscopy to guide himself into the stomach and then push the peg in externally. And if none of these two options are available, then it can be placed surgically. Well, that's really helpful, Fran. And um, that certainly gives, gives us lots of options to help feed our patients. Is there any circumstance in which enteral feeding um, is not going to be effective and in that situation what other options do we have to feed our patients? Yes of course enteral feeding is only an option if you have a functioning gut. If you have a non-functioning gut then it's not an option is it? Uh, so, so if you have intestinal failure then you may find that enteral feeding is not possible. So mainly the people that we see that are unsuitable for enteral feeding are people that have either an unaccessible gut, large mass obstructing the small bowel, large abdominal surgery, they need to go on gut rest, or short gut or ultra short gut. So these are type 1, type 2, and type 3 intestinal failures that I described to you. And so if you do have these conditions, your only other option for nutrition is parenteral. So parenteral feeding is provided by accessing a blood vessel, generally speaking, a central blood vessels. You can do peripheral parenteral nutrition through a small cannula, but the content and osmolality of the feed will have to be different. So generally speaking, you should uh, secure a central blood vessels, like a vein, with either a central line with a dedicated lumen for parenteral nutrition, or a pick line or a Heckman line or a port with a single lumen and it will be only dedicated to parental nutrition. Parental nutrition can be exclusive, so-called total parental nutrition, or can be supplementary. So maybe if the patient has issues in terms of they have a short gut or ultra short gut but they still have an accessible oral route and they enjoy some oral diet but they know they're not going to provide them the nutrition that is required then they can go on parental nutrition, but that doesn't have to be total. They can still continue taking some oral diet. We can do PN acutely in the hospital for a short period of time, for example, for the type 1 and type 2 intestinal failures, or then it can be home parental nutrition if you have um, conditions that in 
is unreversible. For example, you have short or ultra short gut, and you're going to have to go home on parental nutrition. So that's really helpful, Fran. Um, and thank you for taking us through a, a comprehensive overview of, of how we approach the malnourished patient and how, how we can help treat them. Um, are there any other special circumstances in which you feel that we should need to be aware just as a general medical physician in the hospital? Yeah, I mentioned this before, Johnny. I think the, mm, may, the extreme case of malnutrition we see as acute physicians sometimes coming into the hospital and it can be tricky to manage the patients with anorexia nervosa. They are the extreme case of malnutrition and they can be at a very, very low BMIs. We don't tend to be involved in their care unless they run into significant troubles when their BMI drops less than 14. Otherwise, then generally speaking, managed by the colleagues in psychiatry as anorexia nervosa, it is a psychiatric illness. However, when you reach the severity of malnutrition with a BMI less than 14, patients become bradycardic, they, lost, they lose control of the core muscles, then is when the acute physician or indeed it should be the gastroenterologist looking after these patients. But it's something to be aware of because these are the patients that are on the extreme stage of starvation and they can look completely fine biochemically. So, you know, often when we get patients that are hypoalbuminemic, they be, we have been told, oh, yes, it's because they're malnourished. No, that's not the case. Albumin is really the last thing to drop when you're malnourished. If you take a patient with anorexia nervosa, BMI of 12, and you do a set of blood tests, you will find a normal albumin. So do never attribute low albumin to nutrition alone. It is a phase reaction protein. drops because you're acutely ill. And so if you see a patient with anorexia nervosa, with a low BMI less than 14 and you do a set of blood tests and they're abnormal, alarm bell should be ringing really loudly in your head because something really dramatic is going on. These patients can perforate their viscuses without any warning. And so if any abnormality, even just mild raised urea after you rehydrate them or an abnormal CRP or a low albumin should be really a worrying sign. So you should be really ready to do cross-sectional images and take this forward. Because although these patients are extremely malnourished, we know if they return to a normal BMI and they maintain that for a period of time, they have got good chances to recover from their illness. And so these are the patients that if you're encountering your acute medical receiving take, you should involve the really at early stage dietitian, gastroenterologist and psychiatrist also because of the regulations they are behind feeding someone that is against the idea of feeding. Something that I wanted to mention that we didn't have the chance to, uh, something to understand when someone is malnourished, it doesn't only have consequences on to your um, physiology and pathophysiology, but also have significant impact on your mental health. There was a trial performed, which is a landmark of nutrition studies in 1944 to 1945 in America, and it was called the Minnesota Starvation Trial, something that we will never be allowed to repeat for ethical reasons, but they took a group of veterans and they basically starved them for 24 weeks, making them losing 25% of their body weight. So they normally had a diet of about 3,000 calories per day and they dropped them out to a cal of 1,500 calories per day. And as the body adapted, 
and they lost more and more weight and they became malnourished, a striking uh, effect on their uh, higher function was uh, you know, identified. They become very withdrawn, very depressed, very paranoid. So when you have a malnourished patient, for whatever reason is, they're acutely ill because they had pneumonia, they've been in ICU, or they may not be at their best higher function, they may be depressed, they may be withdrawing, they may not want to engage in treatment. Nutrition helps this. And so these anorexic patients, when they come in with a very low BMI, they won't be in a frame of mind to be able to take any decision for their own. And so if they are refusing intervention, which in their case, the life-saving intervention is nutrition, then they will have to go under a mental health act with a specific session suggesting the NG feeding is required. So Fran, thank you for, for that um, really useful advice. Um, certainly, I ho- hope that we as, as dental clinicians and in the acute medical admissions unit be able to benefit from that useful advice that you've offered. And really, I think it highlights how important it is to assess nutrition when patients are coming in um, through the front door of the hospital. Um, Would you like to just tell us what the the key take-home messages are from from our conversation today? Thanks, Johnny. Yes, um, I would say the main learning points from today would be nutrition problems are common in acutely ill. And so you have to think about it. There are tools that allow you to assess malnutrition and you're welcome to use them. Simple questions and mass screening tools. Involve your dietitian colleagues early. You can start on by simply review patient's diet, offering food and oral nutritional supplementation and fortifications as your first step on nutritional interventions. If the oral route is compromised or the patient is unable to achieve the calorie required, then you can think about nasogastric feeding or gastrostomy feeding tubes. And I would say think of and recognize patients that are at risk of refeeding syndrome and act upon it before complications occur. Think about your refeeding vitamins to avoid vernicus encephalopathy and replace electrolytes. And most of all, go back to the words and be my nutrition. Thank you, Fran. And uh, I hope that we've inspired um, our listeners to become just that and become nutrition champions. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you for taking uh, the time to, to talk to us today about nutrition and the malnourished patient. Thank you. Thank you, John.